0: listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, let's talk about music. We have featured a lot of Ohio-based artists like Victor Samalot, Molly Morgan, Whiskey Pilot, and many, many more. If you go to OhioMysteries.com and select Featured Music from the drop-down menu, you can find all of these very talented artists. If you are an artist from Ohio or know someone who is, and you would like to feature your music on our podcast, Send us an email at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. It's time to dig up a new mystery. I'm your co host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and award winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
1: Hi, everybody. Joe Desch's family knew he'd done something very special in his life. After all, he had a Congressional Medal for Merit to prove it, the highest award a civilian can receive from the U.S. government. But he refused to talk about it. When his children and grandchildren in Kettering, Ohio, asked him about it, he would put them off sometimes even become angry, as if the secret he carried was a painful one. They only knew it had something to do with his job as a code-breaker, working at Dayton's National Cash Register Company during World War II, and that it had caused him to have a nervous breakdown. In 2001, Jim Bross wrote a fascinating eight-part series for the Dayton Daily News, on what he uncovered about Joe Desh's life and remarkable work. I'm going to give you the highlights. This is the first in a series of three about Ohio's phenomenal World War II codebreakers. Tonight, Joe Desh and his assault on Germany's near-impregnable Enigma cipher machine. It was in 1986 that Debbie Anderson thought she would try one more time to get her father to open up. He was 79 years old, recuperating in a Kettering nursing home from a broken hip. And in that morning's newspaper was a story about President Ronald Reagan giving a Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously to Dayton, Ohio native Captain Joseph Rochefort, for cracking a World War II Japanese code just in time to help the U.S. Navy win a decisive Battle of Midway. Debbie asked her dad if she knew Rochefort, but he tensed up. Then he yelled, They've probably found out I'm in here and have this place bugged, afraid I'll spill the beans. Don't you ever dare bring that up again. A year later, her father died of a stroke, taking his secrets to the grave. Or so he thought. A few short years later, Debbie's 10-year-old son Jesse was writing about his family history for a school project, and the pair of them began rooting through old memorabilia in a box kept in the basement. There, she found a transcript of an interview that her father had done with a Smithsonian Institute historian. There were sections crossed out by a felt tip pen, and the words DELETE from tape and manuscript in the margin. The redacted part spoke of an electronic machine, of classified code names, of British scientists, and of top-secret equipment dumped and buried in the middle of the night. At last, Debbie thought, a hint at what her father had been doing those many years ago. Otherwise, he had been careful— burning the most crucial documents from his time as a codebreaker and later as head of National Cash Register's military division. But those eight redacted pages on the Smithsonian transcript opened a new door for her, and she walked through. So, let's go back to early 1941, before the United States even entered the war. The Germans had been encoding their messages using a machine that looked like a typewriter. It was called the Enigma. It would scramble each keystroke using a series of three rotors. Small, simple, but each of those rotors could have any number of starting positions, and that would ultimately generate billions upon billions of possible letter combinations. Codebreakers in Britain and Poland secretly captured some documents from the Germans that helped them build a machine that could crack these codes. And they were successful in routing many attacks using rooms full of women and hundreds of gear-like mechanisms on a wall that would run 24 hours a day, sorting out coded communications. But in February of 1942, that was just three months after the United States entered the war, the Germans improved the Enigma. Instead of using three rotors that set up the letter combinations, they added a fourth, The early code-breaking system used by the Brits and the Poles just weren't fast enough to make up for this extra rotor. And if you're trying to read a message in wartime, you need it fast. So, once again, German submarines in the Atlantic were operating in total secrecy. The result was devastating, quadrupling the number of ships their U-boats were sinking. In just six months— The Germans took down 500 ships, carrying soldiers, ammunition, plane fuel, all the things the Allies needed to try and end this bloody, vicious war. The Americans began pressuring the Brits into sharing the design of their codebreaker. It was called the bomb, with an E on the end. They wanted a chance to improve it to meet the near-impossible speeds they needed to decipher the German communique that was taking down American ships, too. By the end of 1942, the Brits relinquished it. So, who to give this very important project to? Navy specialists at MIT believed there were only two companies in the United States with a technology that could produce what they needed, IBM and Dayton's National Cash Register Company, which we'll call NCR. NCR was best suited to the task for a couple of reasons. The chairman of the board at the time was Colonel Edward Deeds, who had a long working relationship with the Navy's top brass. And many of NCR's factories were idle. NCR had been ordered by the War Production Board to stop making its major product, cash registers, for the duration of the war. A third reason is because of the man who would head up the project, a 35-year-old brilliant engineer who headed the company's electrical research lab and whose inventions were already being used on other military efforts. His name was Joe Desch. Joe was born in Dayton in 1907, and that was just four years after his hometown's most famous sons, Orville and Wilbur Wright, piloted the first man-made flight. Joe was raised in the Edgemont neighborhood, a childhood filled with camping and canoeing along the great Miami River and shooting craps in back alleys with friends. He was a Roman Catholic altar boy and straight-A student at Emanuel Elementary. Joe came from a line of wagon makers. His father, grandfather, and uncles were all masters of the craft. So Joe grew up learning how to tinker with the best of them. But Joe's future would not be in wagons. He got a scholarship to the University of Dayton and collected an electrical engineering degree with honors in 1929. From there, he was hired by General Motors Radio Division, and nine years after that, he was handpicked to run National Cash Register's new electronic research department. His assignment? Design the first electronic adding machine. He gained a national reputation after inventing miniature technology that powered electronic calculators. Think of it as the microchip of its day. His little fast-moving gas tubes enabled calculations 100 times faster than anything before it. Since he had already proven that speed was his specialty, the Navy turned its eyes to him when they needed a super-fast deciphering machine. The project used the same name that it had in Britain. It was called the Bomb, with an E on the end. And in the spring of 1942, Joe Desh pored over the blueprints from the Brits, looking for a way to make it faster. The Enigma cipher machine used by the Germans was a Dutch invention. I won't go into the details of how it worked, These technical things are so much easier to show than describe. But let me say this. When the Germans added that fourth rotor, it meant the possible combinations for encoding just one character was 10 to the 26th power. That's a 10 with 26 zeros after it, a number so big there's no name for it. Frankly, it's a miracle the Brits and Poles had ever deciphered it back when it only had three rotors. But they did get some help from the Germans themselves. Because the Germans were so confident nobody could crack it, they got lazy. They often used predictable greetings and sign-offs in their codes, and that created known strings of text that gave Allied codebreakers a jumpstart. The code breakers would feed some of that text into their bomb, and as soon as it recognized it, it automatically unscrambled the rest. It still took hours and hours to do, but when the Germans added a fourth rotor, it started taking days. Events were over before the codes were of any use. Joe Desch would have loved to put his speedy little gas tubes into work on this problem, he calculated he would need 70,000 of them, and that generated far too much heat. It would destroy the machine before it had done its work. He was going to need to make some changes. This new assignment. Was taking a huge emotional toll on Joe. Not only did it mean 14 hour workdays with desperate military officials breathing down his neck, but Joe's mom was German born. For that, he had to spend three days in Washington, D.C., being interrogated for his security clearance, with inquisitors hurling insults and accusations trying to break him down. And he broke. He told them he didn't want the job. He was prepared to walk away. That's when they finally cleared him and returned him to Dayton to begin work. But that didn't mean they fully trusted him. His mother, Augusta, was a widow, born in Germany and immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 13. She had remained in touch with her relatives in Europe and had even gone back a couple of times for visits. And at least a couple of her relatives were active in the Nazi party. So Joe was allowed only limited supervised visits with his mother and two younger sisters, and forbidden altogether from seeing some questionable cousins. And to make sure that he did as he was told, the Navy gave Joe a shadow. At first, It amounted to plainclothes guards who sat in parked cars outside NCR during the day and outside Joe's home on Greenmount Boulevard in the suburb of Oakwood all night. He was openly tailed wherever he went. Finally, they just put a Navy commander inside Joe's home to keep an eye on him. It was a small two-bedroom Tudor cottage that Joe had built a couple of years earlier for him and his wife Dorothy, Things got very tense living in close quarters with that ever-watchful commander. When high-level people from England came to visit the project, admirals, even members of Parliament, Joe would always put them up at his home because it was the most secure place in town other than NCR. They would sleep on the floor. As for NCR... All the action was taking place in Building 26 at Stewart Street and Patterson Boulevard. It was converted into a top-secret assembly plant. Marine veterans with machine guns were hired to patrol on the roof around the clock. Over the next year, Joe Desch's research department would grow from a staff of 20 to more than 1,000. Joe put up with all of it, in part from a sense of guilt. You see, he had been in ROTC as a young man, and he even got a commission to become an officer in an Army Ordnance Unit. But even before the bomb project, the Navy knew his value as a technical expert, and they didn't want him at risk. So they pulled those orders and kept Joe stateside. Joe was thankful for it, but he always felt guilty about it. Maybe this project would help make up for it. Joe kept tinkering with his design, and he finally came up with a machine that could handle some of the heat. It wasn't pretty. Others would criticize it for looking so ugly and unwieldy. But Joe was confident it would get the job done through sheer brute force. So the Navy promised whatever money and personnel he needed, bomb at NCR was a priority second only to the development of the atomic bomb.
0: Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads,
1: The original contract for the first NCR bombs called for them to be delivered to the Navy in February of 1943. The Navy wanted them before the spring, when German U-boats would be back and actively striking at Allied shipping. It wasn't ready. All Joe Desch had were a couple of temperamental prototypes, dubbed Adam and Eve, that leaked oil and kept breaking down. For Joe... The tension was mounting. Sleepless nights, a 24-hour guard watching his every move, and then this. That commander, staying at his house, told him to hurry up, that a lot of American boys would die if he didn't get the job done. That statement haunted him. Years later, in a rare moment of openness with his daughter, Joe would tell her he felt so much anguish over the image of sailors drowning in the Atlantic that he believed his very soul was in jeopardy. There was more tinkering and adjusting on those prototypes, Adam and Eve, and in May of 1943, a huge breakthrough. Part of Joe's design was for his machine to skim through a code, and when it recognized what the message was, It would stop racing, then back up, slowly rewinding to the point where the Germans had started their message on the four rotor wheels of their Enigma machine. That day in May, a test of the prototype Atom was humming along when its high-pitched whine stopped and shut off. At first, everybody thought it was an electrical short, but then... As it was designed to do, it stirred back to life and rewound to show a specific rotor position. Quickly, the floor manager had someone else run that same encrypted message through the other prototype, Eve. And it did the same thing. So they gave a printout of the rotor positions to the Navy officer on the site, and he wired the result to Washington. Their codebreakers couldn't believe their good fortune. The message revealed the Germans were moving 17 submarines to attack a westbound Allied convoy. The convoy immediately sent pilots out to hunt down the submarines, and they found them, sinking one, damaging several others, and preventing the ambush. It was the first success of the NCR bomb, and it was a big one. A Navy official sent word back to NCR engineers to let them know that single save had just paid for the entire cost of the NCR project. The Navy happily pushed ahead with full-scale production. More than 600 newly enlisted members of the U.S. Navy Women's Auxiliary, they were called WAVES, were sent to Dayton. They didn't know where they were going until they got there and told repeatedly to keep their mouths shut. To drive the point home, one Navy woman said her commander told them that if they talked about what they were doing, they'd be shot. They took that threat seriously. These women were a critical part of the World War II workforce since there was a shortage of men at home. They were quartered at Sugar Camp off Shantz Avenue, once a training center for the NCR sales force. Eight to a cabin, half the women working a 12-hour shift while the other half slept. Each morning, they were marched in full uniform to NCR's Building Twenty Six where they wired, soldered, and assembled parts of the bombs, though they had no idea what they were making or even what its purpose was. They worked in different rooms, so no one person could identify the whole machine. It was so secret that until some documents were declassified in the 1990s, there wasn't even a single public record that indicated those women were ever there at all. In their downtime, the waves, if they had any energy left after their shift, were free to enjoy themselves at the sugar camp pool, in the recreation hall where movies were shown, and in a cafeteria renowned for its great food, including beef, which was not on many restaurant menus during the war. The camp's old station wagon would even take them downtown for trips to local ballrooms, where they could spend some of the $21 a month that they made from the Navy. The celebration over that first NCR bomb success was short-lived. Engineers were still struggling with the machine overheating and causing faulty electrical signals. There were more oil leaks There came a time when the Navy even announced it was ready to scrap the project. It was Joe Desch's darkest hour. But Joe talked them out of it, explained plans he had to fix the problems, or at least make them less of a problem so the machine could still do its work. The Navy allowed him to continue. That September of 1943, NCR shipped 120 finished machines to Washington. In the dead of night, they were loaded onto flat cars where railroad tracks backed up to the rear entrance of Building 26. Some of the Navy women assemblers went along to operate them. They still didn't know what they were doing, only knew that if a bell went off, big shots would run into the room to retrieve a printout and then race off without a word. The new machines continued to leak some oil, but they proved to be reliable, and more importantly, capable of running 24 hours a day. Here's the difference to what those improvements made in the NCR bombs. In June of 1943, when the first machines were under development, it took an average of 600 hours to decrypt an Enigma message. That December, when all 120 NCR bombs went online, it took just 18 hours. It proved to be 200 times faster than the codebreaker used by the Poles and 20 times faster than the one being used in Britain. Recognizing that, the Brits turned over most deciphering operations in the Atlantic to the Americans. Historians have tried to estimate what the NCR bomb meant to the war effort. There's no way to be sure, but even by the most conservative estimates, they believe it probably shortened the conflict by at least a year, sparing hundreds of thousands of lives on both sides of the pond. Joe Desch would pay a very high price for his success. The breaking point came November the 14th. By now, Joe's soul was in turmoil. He had even stopped going to church, believing he was living in a state of mortal sin. But that day in 1944, he saw a coded message that had to be sent to Washington. A few weeks earlier, the Japanese had conducted some savage kamikaze attacks. The new message his machine just decoded now gave the precise location for two convoys that were transporting the Japanese 23rd Infantry Division. Joe knew the Navy was seeking revenge, that by sending that info of those troop movements to Washington, that U.S. Navy submarines would move into position to ambush them, that because of Joe Desch's work, thousands of troops and their ships would be sent to the bottom of the Philippine Sea. Joe couldn't take it anymore. He handed the message to the dispatcher, told her to send it to Washington, then he walked out of NCR's Building 26, never to come back. Still tailed by his shadow, he drove to a friend's farm outside Xenia, Ohio, and started splitting wood. He did that every day for six weeks, splitting wood, splitting wood, until a Navy intelligence officer from Washington approached him and pleaded for him to return, that his country needed him. Joe complied, Catholic guilt and all. His one condition, that the Navy officer in his home be sent to live somewhere else, was denied. The commander stayed at Joe's cottage, even after the war, until early 1946. Joe survived his breakdown and went on to become an assistant vice president at NCR. In 1947, in a private award ceremony because of the nature of his work, he was quietly given the Congressional Medal for Merit, the highest award given to a civilian for service to his country. But the scars were so deep. Joe later learned that nearly every man in that Army Ordnance Unit to which he'd been assigned, the one he would have gone to the front with if the Navy hadn't pulled him out, had been killed or wounded. Joe's daughter, Debbie Anderson, told the Dayton Daily News that in his darkest moments her father used to say, I would much rather have been with them. It's hard to know how much Joe might have reacted if he had known what else the government had used his work for. Turns out, those high speed electronic counters he had invented just prior to the war. They were used in the atom bombs that were sent to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end the war. Joe Desh never knew that. A decade after the war, Joe had made enough peace with the conflict in his soul that he was able to start going to church again. Only a couple of times would he hint to his daughter, Debbie, about his past. But after his death in 1987... After Debbie found those records in her basement, she started putting together the story of her dad's secret life, talking to former NCR employees, naval historians, even surviving Navy women who worked in Building 26. She was inspired to organize a reunion for those waves, an event that helped call new attention to Dayton's role in the war. By the way, the author of that Dayton Daily News series 22 years ago went on to do a book about it, The Secret in Building 26 by Jim DeBross. We should also give some credit to University of Maryland history professor Colin Burke, who was already researching NCR's connection to the war before Joe's daughter found him. If you like this episode, come back Wednesday, because, as I alluded to in the beginning, we are not done. Dayton had two famous codebreakers during World War II, both named Joe. Joe Desch, the civilian, pitted his brain power against the Germans in the Atlantic, while Joe Rochefort, a naval captain, tackled the Japanese in the Pacific. And we'll follow that with the final part three in this series featuring the Ohio woman who is considered the master.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode,
1: hop on over
0: to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.